Dear Tim, the good gift that was entrusted to me, I now hand over to you. Guard this gift, grow it, and pass it on to those to come. Good evening, everybody. How are we doing this Labor Weekend? We're good? Hey, thanks uh, to the team for leading us in worship tonight. Harrison looked like he was on his last legs leading the songs. I don't know if his voice was um, failing there, but uh, thank you for what you've been doing. Really appreciate it. Well, as Monica's already said, we've kept, we're picking up from uh, where we began last week with uh, the second look at the second letter that Timothy wrote to the church. And uh, as you look at this letter, it's an incredibly powerful piece of, of, uh, of word to us. It's incredibly um, uh, integrated in every sense. It's a little bit like poetry, because every word seems to have been chosen and crafted for the purposes that uh, Paul wants to bring to us. So let me, let me pray for us as we open this up. Father, as we look into the scriptures this evening, um, we thank you that we capture not only an event of 2,000 years ago, a letter between two really close friends, but it captures for us the heart of Paul who was just so deeply in love with you and so desperately wanted this incredible gospel, this good news, to be made known to the world. And we can see that his highest hope was made true, for here we are 2,000 years later looking at these words, these same words that he penned in prison. And again, they are powerful in our midst. So we ask Holy Spirit for you to open us up to lead us and guide us and to bring revelation to us uh, through the scriptures this evening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. Well, um, I'm going to pick up where Monica left off uh, the other week, not to in any way correct anything that she's saying, but I just uh, wanted to capture the essence of the words that she was bringing to us, and she did such a fantastic job of that last week. So let's begin by looking at, um, at these verses here. Thanks, Bernie. We'll see if we can get that going. Okay. If we're nothing, we're consistent. <laughs> okay, there we go. All right. Paul says, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Now, Monica talked to us about these powerful emotive words, this letter that was written from prison to young Timothy, a pastor. And this letter was written in such a way that you have to take really, really good care as you read it. Because you know when somebody's sitting in prison with nothing else to do, nothing else on their mind, except maybe their impending death. And he's writing a letter, the last letter to his friend. If you could only think of that yourself, what would that be like if you were writing your very last letter, possibly your last letter, you wouldn't, wouldn't be really sure. You would make sure that every word counted, wouldn't you? It'll be one of those times when you go, what can I say? What can I say that is just going to leave the most powerful legacy that I can about the things that I hope for and trust in the most? And so here we are looking at 
Paul's letter to Timothy. And he's writing this in such a way that every word does count. And I want to just see that, that top line up there. It says that Paul says, um, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. Now I just want you to take those words for a moment, with a clear conscience. A clear conscience meant that you had nothing of any guilt that separated you from God. And the whole, the whole thing about a relationship with God is that we have a clear conscience. And so these words, clear conscience, weren't just simply saying, I feel good about myself. They're saying, I am guilt-free. I have been forgiven. I have been fulfilled in every sense of the word by Christ. And now I can stand here talking to you, in this case, writing to his friend Timothy, and say, with a, with a good conscience, with a clear conscience, there is nothing that separates me from God. There is no guilt, no shame, nothing that I've ever done that is going to be held against me on that day of reckoning when I stand before the Lord. And this is the beautiful thing about the gospel. This is why the gospel is good news, is because Jesus has come and he has paid the price. And for Paul to tie this good conscience in in the sentence close to that reference to his ancestors is a very significant thing he's doing here. He's doing this because the... Old Testament way was always about fighting your conscience, making your conscience clean and clear by performing animal sacrifices as a way of cleansing as the word of God required. But now when the Lamb of God has been slaughtered, been hung on the cross for us, uh, that is the perfect sacrifice, God's own son. And so here Paul is aligning this, this, this conscience of his ancestors with his own clear conscience. And he's saying there's a, there's a distinction now that I'm claiming that we have clear conscience because of Christ. And that is a powerful thing to rest in even when you're in your last days lying there, standing there, sitting there, pacing up and down there in prison. And so he takes this, this energy, this power here of what is being offered through God, and he projects it out to Timothy. And he says, I want you to have this too, this clear conscience. And we can see that this Christian faith here that he's describing is, is, has got some, some maturity to it. Because we're talking to Timothy, who is now recognized by Paul as a third generation Christian. Okay, so he's talking here about, um, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother. Then it lived in your mother, Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. So this is, this is an older guy talking to a younger guy, as we know. Okay, but Paul has already seen the faith being transmitted, if you like, from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. And that's how Christian faith passes. How many of you here can say... I could, I could put myself in Timothy's place and say, yeah, I'm a third-generation Christian or, or longer. How many of you could do that? So you stand in that same, that same experience. But here's Paul as an older guy saying, hey, listen, I can see that this runs in your family. You know, Your family has been faithful. And because of their faithful witness, you too now stand in a place where you are being given a responsibility with the gospel of Jesus. And... Timothy owes his mum, Eunice, and his grandmother a debt of gratitude, doesn't he? Because he's received from them. And so for any of us who have received the gospel from family, we owe them a debt of gratitude because they have made it easier for us to understand the gospel by their life, by their witness, by the things that they have passed on to you. So here is Paul introducing himself 
And uh, as I say, Monica did a fantastic job of helping us see the emotion that Paul was speaking with to Timothy. Uh, and yet we're going to push on here. So Paul said, For this reason I remind you to fan into flames the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit of God gave us, sorry, for the Spirit of God gave us does for what the Spirit of God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Okay, so Paul here is reminding Timothy that he has spiritual gifts. Now, now every one of us here has some spiritual gifts of some description, but they need to be fanned into flame. And that's something that each one of us needs to do before God. Otherwise, we just allow the gifts that we've got to lie latent. Now, let me give you an example of a mate of mine who I went to school with. Okay, Leo was my, my, group, my best man. And uh, he came to Tauranga via the uh, east coast of the North Island, around Kafia, Maricopa Way. Leo turned up at the school sports events, at the school championships. He'd never, ever thrown a shot put before. He'd never thrown a javelin before. He'd never run in races um, running races to this level before. So he turns up, and on the morning of the school championships, the phys ed teacher's there showing him how to throw a shot put and showing him how to, throwing him how to show, throw a javelin. And uh, he had no running shoes, but he won the 100 metres, the 200 metres. He broke the school record in the shot put and, uh, and got a placing in the javelin. And uh, he always said to me, man, I'm so nervous, Craig, whenever I compete in sports. I'm always late for the race because I'm around the back of the phys ed sheds having a smoke. And I just looked at him and I thought to myself, man, if only I had that same level of natural giftedness that he was displaying. Yeah? Um, he, he, he went to the New Zealand Championships, sorry, the North Island Championships, uh, he won the North Island Championships with no shoes, no blocks, but he pulled his hamstring in the last 10 metres and never made it to the New Zealand champs. But he's just one of those guys who is natural. Now, what Paul is doing is describing to Timothy here that he too has been given a gift, but this is a spiritual gift. Uh, the word is charism, okay, like from the word charismata, talked about spiritual gifts. And Paul speaks of a time when he was praying with Timothy and he literally put his hands on him and prayed for him and asked for God to bless him. And in doing so, maybe through a prophetic word or a vision that Paul would have had, he would have seen Timothy in this role as a pastor, as an evangelist, as a teacher, which is essentially the roles that he had. And so what Paul is saying to him is, look, this is a gift that has been imparted to you, but it doesn't happen on its own. What you've got to do is you've got to fan it into flame. Okay, you've got to fan it into flame. And that means you literally uh, have got to throw some more oxygen at it. Okay, you know what I mean by fan it into flame? You know, those of you who use a barbecue or, uh, or have a pizza oven or something, you fan it into flame, you get the thing going. And so here is Paul with his final words talking to his friend saying, you've got a gift, but don't let it die. You've got a gift, but don't let it die. And it's very easy to let the gifts of God that God has given you, let them die. Because you can just get caught up in so many different things. You get so busy, you get so involved. You might be doing good stuff, God stuff. But there'll be particular gifts that God has given you, and you can't let them die. 
You've got to keep on pushing through. You've got to keep on testing God, asking God, speaking into it, learning from it. If you've got a gift of, of helps where God just knows that you love helping people, you've got to make yourself available to others where you can be a blessing. You know, some of you have got a, a gift of teaching. You need to keep on investing in yourself so that you can pass on to others. The gift of music, it's all very well to have a gift of music, but if you're just sitting on your hands, not getting involved with that, all of these things are so true for all of us. And God wants us to fan into flame these gifts. And they're gifts that are from the Holy Spirit. They're unique gifts. They're quality gifts that will grow exponentially. Exponentially, that means they'll grow beyond measure if you allow God to use them. And so with this idea that you've got a gift from God, Paul now goes on to say these words. He says, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And we all look at that and we go, oh, that's the greatest word I've ever heard. Suffering for the gospel. I just can't wait to do more of that. But what's happening here is Paul is using his moral authority. Now, what I mean by moral authority is when somebody has already achieved something or done something, it's easier to call other people to, um, to account on that same thing. Um, I've got a friend of mine who's, who's a really good businessman, but he's very generous. And uh, in recent times, he's made some big investments in some property for church. Okay, so he makes a lot of money, but he also knows other guys who make a lot of money. And so he helped buy some property. And then he went around to his mates and he said, hey, I've done this, you need to do it too. And he's calling them on it. It's, he has moral authority to do so because his friends are in a similar position to him financially. And he's saying, let's do this. I've already done it. I've demonstrated to you that I can do it. Why don't you do it too? Same with Paul. He's already in prison. He's suffering. He's, he knows potentially that death is only around the corner. And we know history tells us that it was true. Paul dies uh, without ever leaving prison after having written this letter. But here he is suffering, and he says to Timothy, you too, you too can suffer. You too don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. You can, you can carry this burden. You can carry this responsibility, Timothy, because I trust in you, and God has invested himself in you. Don't be ashamed. Don't be scared. Don't be nervous. You will find that, the God, that God will give you a way through or a way out as you struggle. Now, it's, it's, um, it's easy to look back over 2,000 years and say, oh, well, hey, look, you know, suffering. Um, maybe it was different back in that day. Well, the simple truth is when somebody suffered, they usually suffered physical violence. Okay, it was a, if you were in trouble, physical violence followed. Same as when I was at secondary school. I did something wrong. Physical suffering usually followed. Get the cane. Okay, so... That was the way it was in the day. You know, I don't limp very much now. I've only seen a counsellor for 10 years. But um, no, it's not true. It's not true. Um, it was just the way it was. Got in trouble, you got the cane. Didn't get it too often, thankfully. But uh, let's just consider the suffering thing. Um, very early on in the, the, the formation of the church, 
the disciples, Jesus' 12 disciples, they were largely still intact there in Jerusalem when the gospel started to be made known. When the day of Pentecost had come and people were filled with the Spirit and people were preaching about the name of Jesus. And uh, a couple of the disciples got in big trouble, Peter and John. And I just want to pick up here on what it was that they suffered as a result of preaching and uh, in one case, performing a miracle that saw a guy walk again who hadn't walked for years. But this is what uh, they say. This is what Peter says. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Okay, this is the Jewish leaders. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, that's sort of like a court, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. Now, this is a, a complete reversal of what we would expect. Okay, so they get a flogging. And I mean, when you get a flogging, you've got a flogging. You know, we're talking blood and meat, you know, flying everywhere. And they had the flogging, they went back to the other disciples, and they're like, yeah! Suffering for Jesus, suffering for the name. We're worthy of being beaten up for Jesus' sake. Okay? Because why? Because they realize that to be suffering like this, they must have done something good for Jesus' sake to wind up the spiritual leaders of the day. So they look at it and say, here we are suffering for the sake of Jesus. And what did they do? Did they go go home and lick their wounds? No, it says that they went out again, straight away, preaching, sharing the good news about Jesus the Messiah. And so suffering was a part of the deal. And so here is Paul, and if we go to Corinthians, we could spend a long time going through the list of sufferings that he went through, flogged, beaten, starving, naked, shipwrecked, goes on, all for the sake of the gospel. And so the simple truth about it for Timothy and it is for us is that um, we're called to be not ashamed. Okay, we're called to be not ashamed. And the influence that you have as a Christian in your community is largely built around your ability to handle some form of persecution. Now, it's subtle. It's subtle. It was interesting, just last week on the... uh, TV3 news program called The Project, they did a week on beliefs, on religion. And and there was a funny little summary right at the end of the week where the panel were talking about Christianity and the guys were saying, hey, you know, Christianity is actually quite a good religion, isn't it? Yeah, they were these secular folks. Yeah, because the principles of of, um, helping people, caring for people, looking out for the poor... Those are really important principles. We, we need more of that, don't we? And, uh, and then somebody said, well, how come it is that we give Christians such a hard time? And there they were reasoning this amongst themselves. And I'm like, I know why you give Christians a hard time. Because you give Muslims a hard time to blow you up. No, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> now, actually, I can't say that. It won't be recorded tonight. But the simple truth is it's probably true in some nations. We can laugh about it, but simply it's true. Um, But we give Christians a hard time because 
Meekness is seen as weakness. Turning the other cheek is the first response. And so therefore it's easy to give people a hard time. But it was fascinating, that little summary on on that project last night, on that project last week, I should say. So here we are, not ashamed. And then Paul continues to push on. Just when you think that Paul is saying, enough to Timothy, surely this is enough to have encouraged him. What happens here is uh, Paul says, he has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. And this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. So here Paul is explaining this, this gospel once again to Timothy. He's saying that we are saved because of what Christ has done on the cross. And he's called us to a holy life. Not because we've done something that deserves it, but all because of what he has done, which has made a way for us. And what Tim- Timothy is hearing here is Paul describing grace, this grace that was given to us. And it's very, very difficult to get your head around. Because how can you be given something which immediately transforms your title, your role, your position, and the way that God sees you? Well, it's all a gift, and that's the way that this gift works. Maybe a little bit I can describe it like this. Um, uh, three years ago, I was in South Africa and uh, at a conference and just happened to be an all-black team playing Springboks down the road. Just, just happened to be, um, by the grace of God. <clears throat> and I happened to, be, happened to be with my friend, Peter Foster, at who Peter happens to be the brother of the assistant coach of the All Blacks, Ian Foster. Okay, So it just happened to be that Ian got hold of Peter and Peter got hold of Ian and it just happened that they had some free tickets, and it just so happened that there was a spare room in the hotel where the All Blacks were staying. And so we got invited to spend the weekend there with the All Blacks as they prepared for the game. Now, um, we um, went out to the game the same time as the All Blacks did, but we were in this minivan that was in behind the All Blacks bus, and we were the emergency van. It means if somebody left their boots behind, we had to spin around and go back and get the boots, you know? So that was fine. And so we go off, and there are cop cars and there are motorbikes everywhere. And they were playing this game where they, the, the cops would go to an intersection, stop all the traffic, and then the bus and us in behind would go flying through the intersection, whether it was a green light or a red light, and then the cops would they'd just leapfrog each other, you see? stopping the traffic. And then we get about five or six miles away from the stadium because all the traffic is heading towards the stadium. They didn't want the bus to get caught up in all of this, all of the traffic for the people going to watch the game. And so what they did is they shut down the motorway on the other side of the motorway and the bus with the All Blacks and our little bus got diverted down the wrong side of the motorway for the next six kilometres all the way through and parked outside the stadium. It was like, yeah. Now, in that moment, there was all this sort of sense in which this is how these people live. What Paul is trying to give to us here is the sense in which because of what Christ has done for us, you were called up into this team that is holy. Not just to travel with them like I didn't have that privilege and uh, we ate with the team afterwards and all that good stuff. It was fun. But um, 
it's a little bit like if, uh, if you excuse this for the sake of um, illustration, if I was to say, Caleb, you have just become an all black. And you'll go, me? An all black? I don't deserve to be an all black. You know? <laughs> you didn't have to say that so convincingly, Eric. <laughs> yeah. Um, but because you're now all black, we want you to wear an all blacks, all blacks gear, uh, train with the all blacks, train like an all black, act like an all black, be part of the all black culture. When people come running to you with their phones, you pose and take selfies like all blacks. Okay. What's actually occurring here is that you're being grafted into that culture. You've been grafted into that team. And what would happen over time if you were called into the All Blacks and you did everything that they were asked to do, you would find yourself growing. Now, we know the illustration has limits because um, you know, not everybody can play for the All Blacks, but the illustration is there to describe what actually occurs in Christ because Christ says, I see you as holy. I see you as set apart. That's the completed work of the cross. Now, because you are part of this family, this is how the family behaves. This is how we roll. This is what our culture is. These, is what, these are what our values are. This is what we do. And so what Paul is saying here is he's, he saved us and he called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Okay, so God has a purpose for you and your life, and his grace has made that possible. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus, before the beginning of time. So here we are being told that we're part of something that spans millennia, is way bigger than all of us. And we're to put our hands and our hearts and our minds, our whole body, into God's hands and trust him for this. And we think this is pretty outstanding stuff. This is what the gospel is all about because it's a free gift of grace. That means we learn to live like we have already been told we are. Just in the same way I use that illustration about Caleb. He would have to learn to live like an all black because he's already been given the jersey. He's already been written on the players list. He's already been given a contract. So he now got, he's got, now got to live up to what he's already been given. And that's what grace is. But it gets even better. It says, uh, read that last sentence again because you notice there that it doesn't... Uh, doesn't have a full stop. It says, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I mean, I said earlier on that this is like poetry. It's like every word has been chosen, but every word has been chosen to give us life because this free gift of Christ, this free gift that he's given us by his death on the cross, hasn't just given us a place in the team to be holy and to be set apart for God, but it has broken the back. It has destroyed death. Destroyed death. Just think of the biggest explosion you can possibly think of, a thermonuclear explosion. It destroys things, right? What happened when Christ rose from the grave is that he destroyed death. He overcame the natural order. 
when he should, he should have just deteriorated, his body should have just, just been lost into the ground, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. He exploded out of the grave, and in doing so, he destroyed death. Do you see that written there? Destroyed death, and has brought life for us, and immortality. We're talking now about a life that goes beyond this life here, but a life that goes on forever and ever and ever, a life with God. This is incredibly powerful and incredibly hope-filled, isn't it? Is that not only do we have Christ at this end of the grave, but through to life eternal. And as I've said before, sometimes here, um, <clears throat> we, uh, we took a funeral some years ago for a, for a young woman who died in Africa. And the, um, the story came back from the village where she had been serving there uh, to remind us that God, our Father, owns the land on both sides of the river. He owns the land on this side of the river where we are now. And when we cross over, our God owns the land on that side of the river also. It's beautiful, isn't it? Beautiful, but so simple, but beautiful picture. And the other side of the river has immortality tied, tied to it. And immortality to light through the gospel. So, so we think we're done. Paul here is basically just addressing his friend. He's really only just begun to say hello. And uh, this is what I'm saying. This is pure poetry. But uh, he just wants to make sure a little bit more that his friend Timothy has got this. And he says, And of this gospel, of this good news, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. Okay, so a herald is somebody who proclaims. Okay, in the old days, we'll be standing on the streets heralding the news. In this case, the news about, about Jesus. And as an apostle, as somebody who gets ahead of the pack and starts new works through miracles, uh, through prophetic visions and words, through the releasing of other people, okay, he, he's a builder. Uh, some people are especially gifted at, at doing this, just creating works of the church from town to town. That's what Paul did. And then, of course, he is a teacher, and we see that in his, in his letters, um, so he says, and of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. And then he connects it back again and says, that is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Okay, which essentially is his identity, his soul, his whole being has been entrusted to God. There is nothing left that Paul has that hasn't been given to God because everything else has been stripped away. When I was uh, first left school, um, I worked in a bank uh, downtown, National Bank. It's no longer no longer exists anymore, actually. National Bank was bought by the ANZ, and um, in those days you had uh, bank security boxes. So we had with inside this huge vault, we had these boxes about this, this big and they had a key on them. The keys were put in a separate box and the, that, that set of keys was only opened by the box that the manager had. It was such a rigmarole. But people would entrust the bank with their very expensive or precious items. It might be family heirlooms, you know, 
jewellery or it might be legal documents that could not afford to be lost or destroyed or burnt or anything like that. And uh, sometimes, you know, we worked there for a few years and there were boxes that were just never opened. We never ever saw the people who, who owned them. But the, the, what they had, the goods that were there, were there for good. Some people would come in every month and put things in and take things out. But in a sense, we in the bank were entrusted with the, with the keeping, the well-being, the safety of these precious, precious items. And this is what Paul is describing here. He's saying that he has entrusted everything that is of value into the hands of God. And, and in doing so, it is until the day that's coming when he too will meet the Lord. And so Paul is trying to ensure that Timothy has a, a very clear picture that he has his friend Paul has lived his life in a way that there is nothing held back. And, and Paul just keeps on retelling this story about how good God is. And we see there, um, that is why I'm suffering as I am. Why? Because of the gospel. He could have taken all that suffering off if he had just recanted his story. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. And Paul says, I know whom I have believed. Paul in his head would have been going back to that, that time of his own conversion on the road to Damascus. When he was going down the road to, to persecute the church. And this, this light appears to him, this bright light. And, and, and he says, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? And it was Jesus meeting him on that road to Damascus. That encounter set Paul up for a lifetime, a lifetime of, of witness, a lifetime of living powerfully for Jesus, a lifetime of being prepared to suffer, to go to prison and ultimately to die for the sake of Jesus because he knew what he believed and he knew why he believed it. Finally, and these are our final words for tonight. What you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in, in us. So everything that we have been given, these gifts that we had to flan, fan into flame, okay, this, this, this gift that we've been entrusted with, this gift that gives us uh, victory over death because death has been destroyed, this gift that leads us into immortality, this is a gift of faith and it has been entrusted to us and it is protected in God by the Holy Spirit working in us. And it's interesting that Paul would finish his, his address in this way by using that word, us. Um, Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. It would have been so much easier to say, guard it with the gift of the Holy Spirit that lives in you. But then that would make that entirely your responsibility. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit that lives in us is what counts. You see, what Paul is saying here is that in spite of all these great gifts that you have personally, all of these things are guarded for each other by each other. We're called to a community. And it's the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are in all of us that looks out for all of us. 
You see, I can't do what I do without your help, without your prayers, without your guidance, without your love, without your assistance. And you can't do what you're called to do in a powerful and effective way without exactly the same thing. And it doesn't matter whether you're a school teacher or a student or a business owner or a corporate employee or a doctor or a nurse or a mum working hard with the kids. All of us can do life to get us to the point where we die. But to do life for God, with God, in God, and fanning into the flame the gifts that have given us, we need each other. And that's why God gives us the gift of the church. Because we need each other. The Holy Spirit in us, and through us, and for us, is what God wants us to remember. And that, my friends is really, really good news because we don't do it alone. Why don't we stand and I'll pray for us. Holy Spirit, we, we see in Paul's writings tonight that there is so much that we are asked to take from you. And even this gift, this gift of faith that we are given, we can't even hold on to it without the work of your Spirit in our lives. This gift that has overcome death, that has destroyed death, that has led us into immortality, this gift from God, this powerful, powerful witness, is something, Lord, that we we struggle to understand. How could we be more than we actually see ourselves to be? How can we be gifted and credited with something that we haven't even attained? How is it that you see us better than we see ourselves? How is it that you call us a son and a daughter when we barely seem to give ourselves any credit for being worthy of our own name, never alone your name? This, this incredible miracle of the gospel, this translation from death to life is more than we deserve. But we thank you for these stirring words of this old man Paul, who in writing to his young friend Timothy, poured out the very, very best words he could find to describe to him what it is that he had inherited in Jesus. Oh Lord, let us let us take hold of this. Let us, let us take hold of it to the point where we, we stand up and we suffer for the name of Jesus. When others would persecute us, intimidate us, yell at us, laugh at us, mock us, ignore us, we can secretly know that we've joined that incredibly good company of the Apostle Paul and those who have gone before us. So Father, help us. Help us to fan and to flame the good gifts that have been given to us, that we might receive and be part of more, of more of your kingdom, and that we might be a greater witness for you. We ask this in Jesus' name.